Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Peter Caraglanis, who's the owner of Rent, Sell, Buy, Move. Now, Peter has a very interesting story of how he got to where he is today, which we dive into. But Peter's real specialty is the presentation and renovation of property. So we have a chat to him about the importance of presenting your property in a certain way when you're wanting to sell. And of course, when you're looking at getting a new tenant involved as well, and the value of between tenancy renovations, and of course, the best bang for buck when it comes to renovating or improving your investment property. It's a great interview with Peter, and I think there's something in it for everyone. So I hope you enjoy it. Here's Peter. Peter Caraglanis, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Oh, it's a pleasure, Mike. Great to be here today. How was that pronunciation? That was pretty good. Mate, you're almost a Mortlockopolis. You're that good. <laughs> Mortlockopolis. Um, so, Peter, kick us off with who you are and what you specialise in. Well, I'm a first generation in Australia, proudly so. Uh, Dad's Greek, mum's Irish. Uh, Dad came here in the 50s and mum in the late 60s. I guess the key thing for who I am, I grew up with a profound sense of just thankfulness being an Australian. My parents instilled uh, within me at a really young age to value the privilege of growing here. Um, got two siblings, which are just, they're just amazing people. Um, grew up in and around the hospitality industry. My father and mother actually met um, in a five-star hotel and managed hotels and restaurants that really gave me an insight as I worked in that arena to customer service at the absolute highest levels. Um, as far as I met my wife, uh, who's a Kiwi, we were 18, married by 22. We'd had five kids by the time we were 32. And got to say, it's probably... Don't mess great... around. <laughs> <laughs> Greek and Irish families, mate. <laughs> How do you think we have those big barbecues? So mm. you've got to invite someone around at your own family. Um, I guess professionally these days, I'm the uh, principal presentation strategist at Rent, Sell, Buy, Move. And essentially, you know, we strategize and project manage uh, presenting properties for market. Beautiful. And we're going to dive into the nuances of that. But just so that we can get to know you a little bit better, what were the posters on the bedroom wall as a youngster? Oh, mate, what a question. Uh, look, <laughs> as a teen, I was obsessed with two things, Peter Brock, Kyle Minogue, and in that order. Um, <laughs> I, had I wonder if they ever met. <laughs> Those, well, vicariously, they met through me. <laughs> oh, right. um, I guess um, like, I had heaps of HDT, that's Holden Dealer Team cars um, on my walls, anything to do with Peter Brock or Holden's or, or HDT Motor Racing. I had it. I even had the, um, the HDT spray jacket, which I actually still have hanging in my wardrobe today. Wow. That's probably an appreciating asset. Yeah. Oh, the kids go, how did you ever fit into that, Dad? Um, <laughs> so it's a static display more than something I wear. Um, <laughs> probably the greatest privilege was being offered a job by Peter Brock at, to come to HDT um, in Port Melbourne. Wow. And, you know, and that was, you know, that was a big privilege. Um, as far as Kyla Minogue, you know, we all watched Neighbours growing up and um, she was a mechanic and that sort of interested me. And um, so lots of Kylie uh, paraphernalia and um, I met her once, just me and 5,000 other people at Southland. So right. yeah, I felt <laughs> privileged. <laughs> she felt privileged, I'm sure. 
I wonder watching sort of Kylie as a mechanic growing up, you had a bit of a distorted idea about what a garage was like. You sort of turn up your first day on the job and there's no Kylie and just a bunch of greasy, sweaty men. Look, I just think it was just bad selling. That's honestly what I thought it was going to be, a workshop full of Kylie Minogue's and it just wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) There's always a Mick and a Macca in uh, in a workshop. Right. What about property? How did you get started in property and what was the first investment? Oh, I love this question. Well, my first foray into property was a third of an acre in the beautiful Mount Evelyn in the Yarra Valley. So I know you're not a Victorian, but the Yarra Valley is just spectacular and it was a virgin block. Um, and my other great love was cricket. And a really good omen was that this block was in Bradman Avenue. Wow. Uh, Yep, and even better, all the surrounding streets were named after the Invincibles, which were part of the Ashes series in England back in the day. And I thought, this is a good omen. So my wife and I were pretty excited. The frontage was 38 metres wide, which was pretty huge. Um, We planned our forever home. Um, It was so big that we were going to actually have a double front at home, you know, with a full veranda. You know, it was just everything we dreamt of. Um, so the vendor, which I thought was a bit of a dunce, he wanted 88k for the block, <laughs> and you know I lowballed him an offer of seventy six thousand dollars, and you know he accepted it about an hour later, and wow. I thought, yeah, it was amazing. It was an in swinging Yorker on oh, right and off stump that one. Oh, absolutely. So you know what did he know? He was such a dunce. So. I discovered on the, well, I saw them on the block. It had 26 full-size gum trees and 900-foot pine trees. Wow. (laughs) Which I thought, you beauty, you know, how expensive could it be to cut down all those trees? (laughs) Let's just say the difference between what um, he wanted on the block and what it was to cost to do it was about five times more than I expected. So, (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) Yes, one of us was the dunce. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't him <laughs> now peter we've got a little bit of an uphill battle to uncover how you got to today because you've you've done some living but you started off as an automotive mechanical engineer so mm-hmm. how did obviously you you were, you were into brock you're into kylie who was a mechanic that's sort of an obvious thing but tell yep. us about your sort of past life there I, I guess you know as i started before i was always obsessed with cars more so you know, Holden's. But that really came about, I had a, a favourite uncle, um, one of mum's brothers called Danny, and he managed a bunch of, a bunch of car yards for some of the biggest companies. He owned his own, and, and he also owned a, uh, a racing team. And his car was an LJ Tirana. And as it turned out, that was the first car that I ended up buying. And when I look, look back at my career in the auto industry, I realised it was through... Uh, Uncle Danny that I was greatly influenced and and as I've got older I think the key thing was is that every time I was with him he gave me his time and I've never forgotten the importance in my personal and professional life that just giving people your time can greatly influence what they do next. And I think uh, that's pretty obvious just from seeing you knock about that uh, you're very generous with your time and you, you thrive on that sort of human connection. Now, 
Speaking of human connections, this is probably poor timing um, to talk about the boys in blue because there's a few issues with human connections in the US at the moment. But that was sort of a big dream for you as well as to to join the the police force. Where where did that come from and what happened there? (laughs) I'm going to start showing my age, Mike. Uh, the The first key influence was watching Matlock Police when I was a kid. Um, I remember the opening credits and scenes to it and um, I remember coming home from school and flicking on Matlock Police. It came on after Superman and I just thought, oh, how good would it be? And it turns out that a lot of it was filmed not far from where I live today. Um, And I guess the the second big one and probably a lot more soberly was um, I, I had a cousin uh, Walter, who actually died uh, on duty in 1982. Um, he was only 19, and I actually remember when I was at school, the teacher coming to me and asking me to come out. And I just remember the chill that sent through me at the time. And, you know, at his funeral, there was a full honour guard, and I remember seeing the chief commissioner and the impact that him wearing the uniform had on me and the camaraderie that existed amongst his, you know, fellow workmates and I guess the key thing there was a solemnness to it but you know as a young bloke there was sort of a nobility as well and that really that affected me still does today um, but I think very well of the police um, third one's a bit of left field um, when I was in the uh, in the auto game I was working with Nissan and back then the highway pursuit cars were R32 special vehicle um, skylines and wow. they were real goers and they're worth a fortune now like oh, they're mate. sort of like almost like automotive <coughs> royalty yeah they are in fact it was really interesting they were painted canary yellow uh-huh. um and Just they had strike to... fear in the heart of villains everywhere yeah absolutely well colloquially they were called candy cars mm. <laughs> um so the original ones were the uh, vk um Pursuit Commodores, and then the, uh, then they came out with these Skylines. And anyway, a, um, a, a Toggy. So if you hear me say Toggy, it means Traffic, traffic Operations Group. Um, right. So a Toggy had come in one morning, and I was taking the service details, and he said, as we're filling out the details, he goes, oh, I've got a vibration um, in the back of the car. And he told me the speeds and I repeated it to him and I said, between 90 and 100, he said, no, you heard me right the first time. And I looked at him, I go, you fair dinkum. He, in fact, said between 190 Ks and 200. Right. <laughs> so I said to him, um, his name was Mike, funnily enough. Um, <laughs> I said to him, well, how am I supposed to find that out? The vibration? And his answer still sits with me. He goes... It's got lights, ain't it? Use them. And so... Wow, the good old days. Surely mate, that wouldn't happen now. Oh, mate, you'd end up in a clink for a century. <laughs> so anyway, he took it out on a really long test drive and I remember following around other cars and, you know, even in 80K zones, people were driving at 40 and I could see them sweating bullets. So anyway, <laughs> allegedly um, we discovered the vibration and allegedly the car came back fixed. And so I just remember um, feeling the uh, the power <laughs> of driving around in a toggy car, and I've gone, "Yep, yeah, I want that for me." 
Mm, I'm driving 195 or thereabouts in a police car and everyone's petrified. I'll, I'll, have, I'll have some of this. Uh, Michael, that's allegedly. <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> right. Now, we're, we're, we've sort of, we're rounding it back to the real estate sector. So from there you sort of got, or not quite in real estate, but on sort of like the fringes of real estate. What was the next move for you? Well, when I got out of the auto game, things just went profoundly bad. Um, and we were in the late 80s and the recession had hit, the recession we had to have. And I had $70 in my pocket. And I was actually waiting to go into the police academy because I'd, um, you know, I'd gone through the interviews and I was accepted. And the Victorian government ran out of money and they shut it down. So I got into the fringes of the real estate um, uh, game by starting a commercial industrial cleaning contracting business. And I only started it to tide me over till the academy opened again, which was supposed to be in three months. And the first contract I picked up was a Shell service station on Warrigal Road, Cheltenham. So I've gone from my biggest contract being a $40 a week contract to three years later, I had a portfolio of 114 commercial and industrial sites around Melbourne. Wow. Um, yeah, I was looking after a lot of government facilities, um, huge international commercial companies. Um, and we just kept growing. And I guess through that, it taught me the value and importance of property design, maintenance and restoration. Um, when you're in that particular industry, it's unbelievably complex. You're dealing with a lot of personalities. There's a lot of egos. There's a lot of unions. Um, you're dealing uh, with management. And so I really cut my teeth, not only on servicing them, but being able to provide coherent answers to issues they had. Mm -hmm. um, and that, for the first time, opened my eyes to the value of property. Wow. Now, there was a formative meeting with a bloke called Jim that sort of set the course of your career a little bit. Um, now, I didn't realise that this was actually a real person. I thought this was just kind of like a cartoon character <laughs> type person. But can you tell us about this Jim? Well, Jim is, in fact, a real bloke. His name's Jim, Jim Penman. Um, and he owns the Jim's group, so you'd probably know it as Jim's Mowing. Mm -hmm. Well, when I first met him, um, I was actually at a business dinner and I didn't realise who he was um, because in all the cartoon pictures of him, he's got a beard and in real life, he's actually clean shaven. Right. Um, and that's just sort of stuck around um, that, that original drawing of him. So I was oblivious to his identity. Anyway, during the night at this business dinner, there would have been about 30, 40 um, other business owners. And the conversation began on what your favourite books and authors were. And I have an incredibly eclectic taste in, in books. And one of the ones that I actually said, there's a, a historical book called Leviticus. And Jim picked up and said, hey, that's my favourite. And he asked me why. And my response to him was it was the first known time in recorded history that covered things like uh, dealing with health, pandemics and hygiene. Um, also co covered areas of community and social justice um, wealth building, which was really interesting, and real estate. Um, it had actually set out contracts of sale, investment strategies, and it always had a generational perspective so that uh, each generation would actually grow off the other one. And, and when we chatted about that, we had something in common, and it was that. 
Here I am thinking, gosh, I need to read read the Bible again, but that's not that Leviticus. It is it? that Leviticus, actually. It is, right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, it, um, a lot of the issues we actually wrestle with today um, in terms of social justice and the things you're talking that you referred to uh, earlier on are actually covered in that area. That's very interesting. I mean, I, I haven't, I must say, I don't think I have ever read Leviticus from the Bible. Um, I, I went to Sunday school as a youngster and then kind of, I guess I fell out of love with, uh, with the big man upstairs. But, um, yeah, that's, I'm curious. I'll, I'll have to go and have a look back in there. So, yeah, so, so that, was a, was that, that was a book written by a disciple or is there a bloke called Leviticus? Where does it come from? Okay, so, um, well, it was actually written by a bloke called Moses. So right. he, he I've wrote, heard of that guy. He's, he's the boat fella, right? Uh, yeah. Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> it was Russell Crowe. <laughs> he's got, and so one of the key things is when Israel was establishing itself again, um, they were sort of setting out a declaration of rights or a charter. And for any ordered society, um, there's got to be rules governing um, how it works. So it deals with really boring things like sanitation, Um, and it's interesting the blueprint for society is still here today um and so yeah i just i just thought it was really fascinating Mm, there you go yeah i'll have to go back to my gideon or whatever (laughs) i've got lying around i probably half inched it from a hotel somewhere um (laughs) yeah i stole i stole a bible (laughs) i'm pretty sure that gets you in trouble um now the next step after the sort of the commercial business, you had a bit of a stint in property sales. So can you run us through that? Yeah, that and, was... and, and just, just so people sort of know where we're at, like, are we close to where you are today? Are we halfway through? Are we, are we, yeah, that, this next thing really sets the foundation of what we're doing today. Okay. Um, just, just, just giving people a roadmap. I did say it was an uphill battle to figure out today because, as I said in the beginning, you've done some living. Yeah, look, I, I think all those. If you if you're a um, if you believe in education and learning, each step is a step closer to what you need to be doing. I believe. Mm. Um, I, I guess with property sales, I was actually a, re- a reluctant debutant um, into property. I was called by a general manager of a new home building company and he wanted me to do sales. And I said to him, blank, not interested, and hung up the phone. Well, he, he was a bit uh, persuasive because he called me five or six times over the next two or three months. And on the fifth call, I said to him, why do you want me to do it? I have no experience in that area. And he'd actually known me in the hospitality game. And he said this, and he said, you have the ability to make people feel important and they trust you. He said, that's why. Um, so on his sixth call, I started the journey. <laughs> wow. He just beat you down. <laughs> yeah, he did, actually. It turns out he didn't need much sales help himself. He seemed pretty good at it. Yeah, look, he, <laughs> he was. He just needed, you know, something else in the company. Yeah. And so what, what, what was the thing that you learnt the most in that position? So obviously selling new property, I guess, like where, where do the leads come from? Like what, what was sort of the setup for selling the property? Okay, it was, 
we had a um, quite a large telemarketing team. I think it was about 50 who worked in there. And what most people don't realise, the greatest source of public information actually comes through Australia Post. Right. They have more data sets than anywhere else in the country, hands down. And so back then, I don't know if it's still the same today, you could actually purchase that list. And a lot of companies did, so not only in the property game, but everyone and anyone did. And um, they used to cold call. And yep. so when I went in there, in fact, when I went into management, I actually rewrote their scripts because they were shocking before. And uh, we used to, we had a team in the end, I think about 10 sales guys, and we would book um, between two and 300 meetings a week. Wowzers. Yeah, it was huge. Gosh. And I mean, is, was it a different environment? Because if someone sort of rings up to sell you a new property now, I, I imagine the Imagine the outcome is a bit different now than it was back then. I mean, how long ago are we talking? Oh, we're talking in uh, mid-2000s. Yeah, okay. So, you know, look, people still get annoyed at the same things. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so when I actually wrote the script for them, the whole idea of it was to get um, yes often enough and be on and off within two minutes. Right. And so from, from, from the... From the opening uh, words to the potential client was to acknowledge that they were probably really busy and didn't want to be on the phone talking for ages. Right. So we had to get uh, build curiosity really quickly and be able to set a date. Um, one of the key things that when we booked what was called an in-home meeting, we called it a coffee meeting. Um, and I'll put that in. And the reason I use the term coffee, instinctively people know that when you have a coffee, it lasts, you know, 15 to 20 minutes tops. Yep. And we just say something like, our guys have only got enough time to get together with you over a coffee. However, um, if there's more information that you need to know, we may be able to have two coffees with you. Yeah, right, okay. And, and it's a really interesting use of words. Um, there was a lot of argument until I proved that it worked. It's a little bit left field, but instinctively... The thing with having a coffee or using terminology like that is everyone's an equal and it's, it's not a hard sell. Interesting, interesting. Now, you've had some very sort of extreme highs, obviously growing the business and, and some low points in your vocational real estate life. <coughs> any, any, anything that stands out to you that you'd like to share? Sure, my first week, I had one hour training when I started. extensive onboarding yeah extensive Um, my first week in I signed more contracts than the other team of six at that time had done in three months Um, and I instinctively while everyone was out trying to sell a house I instinctively knew that it was never about a physical building Mm -hmm. we were talking about future good memories we were talking about a sense of belonging. We were talking about barbecues with people that they love and respected for the years to come. So I actually didn't spend a lot of time talking about the building. Yeah. I actually spent more time talking about what they enjoyed um, doing as far as entertaining goes at their current property. And if they found a new property, what would they like in it? And so people like doing barbecues, we could have an alfresco dining area. Whatever it is they told me they enjoyed doing, we had a plan that would suit their lifestyle. Yeah. And then I would ask this key question, 
who are the first couples that you would have at your place for dinner? And it might be Sam and Pam and John and Samantha. Yeah. And from that moment on, all I would do was talk about those two couples coming over for dinner and what would they be cooking? And it changed everything. It meant that there was no selling involved. All it was was a factual conversation. It's psychology. I mean, it's, it's a little, I, I find it a little bit scary. And um, I guess like, yes, yeah, sales. Uh, one thing that I find interesting is like psychologists, uh, that, you know, that's a, it's a pretty noble profession. They do good things, but it's kind of like the big money for them is now in marketing, right? Mm. Like, because it's kind of, it's all about how to sell without selling. And you were yep. sort of, had your finger on the pulse there, but I'm, I, I've got to say, like it's, it's, um, it's a, it's an area that there's, I think, a lot of bit of, of mistrust, and yeah, like how did you, how did you sort of navigate the fact that you were you were selling a product and you had sort of the commission structure, like did did you ever sort of feel like it was disingenuous or was it only really people that actually wanted what you had anyway that you were that you were really having these conversations with that's a that's a fantastic question um up front when we started talking um i would open with there's two ways of doing this i can tell you everything that you want to know and anything that you want to believe i'll tell you to get the sale or i can tell you what you need to know whether that's good bad and ugly which do you prefer right people always chose the second yeah and so if they wanted a, b- a bigger home that I thought was beyond their means, I'd say, look, happy to sell you, get the big fat commission. However, you know, this is, what's, this is what potentially can happen, for, uh, you know, down the track. Yeah. Um, and people that had timelines, they believed they, they could build a house anywhere they wanted in a Melbourne. And, and so it was about being truthful enough to and I'm really, really strong on stating the negative because if you state the negative in the right way, it actually becomes really positive hmm. because people are in no doubt that you're going to do the right thing by them. Yeah. And as you're far not hiding as, something. No, and, and I'll be upfront. And people say, oh, I had someone, you know, they'd share a negative experience they had somewhere else. And, and they go, how do we know it's not going to happen here? And I said, well, the reality is you don't. You're trusting me. However this is what we're going to do together. Yeah. And so you, it's, it's a really good thing to deal with people's apprehensions up front. Mm. But when it came to talking about who their favourite friends were, it wasn't psychology for me. I, came from, uh, I come from a really big family. We do big barbecues. At our <laughs> current house, we had... 220 people over for one thing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I've heard about some of these Greek weddings where you basically need to book sort of like a principality to fit the cousins and stuff in there. Mate, it's true. We start traffic jams when people park. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, where we live now, um, we've got um, some Chinese neighbours across the road who are just wonderful. And they said to me, they go, we really knew when you came into town with all the cars parking <laughs> everywhere. And she said, we thought well, only Chinese people did that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we congratulated each other on how big our families were. <laughs> so, Peter, bring us to, to now. Your yep. your day job um, is you founded Rent, Sell, Buy, Move. Um, mm. 
what on earth do you actually sell? It's a bit confusing with that name. Yeah, look, Rent, Sell, Buy, Move. Um, in fact, the first iteration was called uh, Moving or Renting. And it was just really nondescript. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, strangely enough, I was thinking of where the, the word news come from, as in when we watch news. And it's actually uh, comes from four words, north, east, west, and south. And it, Interesting. Yeah, it covers the four points of the earth. And so when I went to change the name, Rent, Sell, Buy, Move, covers really the four key areas in the property game. Yep. And we deal with all of them. And so through my time um, owning franchise businesses um, and other businesses, um, I actually instinctively know who's coming and who's moving. I know who's selling a property. I know when tenants are coming in and going out. Um, and what it meant for me was that I, if I was going to cover a business and someone was going to Google something, like rent, sell, buy, or move, um, the chances of it coming up were much higher. Right. So what are the services around each of those sort of points of the compass? So if someone is renting, are we talking about someone that's leasing their property? If they're selling, I mean, you're Mm -hmm. not a a real estate agent. So what what are we doing for the sellers and the buyers and the movers? Help us out. Well, JVs or joint ventures are at the centre of everything I do. Yep. Um, I don't need to know everything. I just need to know people who know things. Yep. And so I know through experience who the best agents are to sell properties. I know who the best property managers are out there. And so I've come across rental properties where I've met uh, the landlord who's been incredibly disgruntled with who's you know whoever's handling their property and when i meet them and we're doing work on their property um, we've led them to new and fantastic property managers um, we've had uh, i had one landlord who was at six and sevens as to whether he was going to release his property it was a massive property in Muralbark. it was i think it was around 14 or 1500 square meters that so was huge mm. And he'd owned it for about 40 years, wasn't sure what he wanted to do. And I'd asked him, had he ever thought of subdividing it? And from that conversation, I put him in contact with someone who specialises in subdividing, put him in another contact with another agent who actually specialises in selling multi-dwelling properties. And we also picked up his personal property out of it. So it was about a $3.6 million deal. Oh, wow. It sounds very sort of stereotypically Greek, like with all these connections, you know, I've got a cousin that does this or that sort of stuff. We're not talking about cousins though. You just are no. connected in the space. Yeah. And uh, I, I educate myself in the real estate game incredibly. And so, you know, I listen to podcasts, I read a lot. Um, there's often a big difference between what people say and what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and so along the journey, I meet the really ethical people out there. Yeah. And so for me, it's, there are things that I do that I'm really, really good at and I'm upfront. I am the best at what I do, Mike. When we're preparing properties for sale, I'll guarantee you, you will not find a better one. And, 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 and that is really why I wanted to get you. And I guess you're like, if we zero in on your, your special skill, it is sort of the renovation, 
preparation for selling or let's say presenting the property um, for lease, for sale, whatever. Yep. Um, with renovations, uh, and renovations are in the news at the moment with the new government initiative. We're sort of recording in, in June. Um, it might be July before it comes out. But um, for people that are wanting to get the best bang for buck in their renos, can you give us some tips on, on what to do? Before your reno, if you're going to sell the property, uh, so if you're preparing for sale, yep. I say this every single time. If you have a budget for one thing and one thing only, clean your windows. Right. It's as simple as that. When you pull back the curtains and get rid of the shears and you clean your windows, and if that's all you've got a budget for, do it every single time because it makes that much difference. Right. Absolutely. But... As far as renoing or presenting a property, the number one key area other than cleaning a property is definitely painting because by the simple act of painting and using the right paint, um, so I'm not talking about the brand, but the colour, mm -hmm. so you get for really nice neutral tones everywhere because you can actually change the feel of a property by the type of furnishings you bring in in terms of colour scheme. Mm -hmm. But when you paint a property and you fill in the cracks, it's like getting a new suit. You know what it's like, Mike? I know you've got a wardrobe full of Xenia suits uh, <laughs> and those really good shoes. When you get a nice new shirt on or a blouse um, and a suit, you just feel different. And so painting a property is the first big thing. And I would recommend it every single time. I definitely feel quite different when I put a blouse on. Um, <laughs> Peter, I've heard, you, um, I've heard you ask a provocative question to clients before. If you, had to, if you had to, could you sell your property in six weeks? And you think that everybody should be able to answer yes. What, what, what's the reason behind that? Okay, that's called keeping your property sales ready. Um, and circumstances can change super quickly through financial means, through opportunity. Um, and the idea came from when I was back in the auto game. So clients that service their car regularly and they washed it all the time, when they wanted to sell the property and get a, a roadworthy, it was a really cheap task and quick task. And it means that they could turn their car over super quickly and you know, optimise their return. Clients who didn't look after their vehicles, didn't wash it, didn't service it, when it came to doing a roadworthy, it was a laborious and expensive task. And inevitably, in the end, they'd always get less. Yep. And so that actually flowed over into the property games. And we've all been in homes where properties haven't been uh, maintained. And the financial and emotional trauma that goes through when, you know, with a vendor or a landlord when a property hasn't been maintained is horrendous. And, you know, we, we had an example last year um, of a vendor that was bringing a property uh, to market she had an issue with dogs peeing and cats so it had what we call urine contamination <laughs> um it was about yeah just not even the cleaning part of it but just dealing with the urine specifically was about eight thousand dollars wowzers yeah because the secondary there's a whole bunch of technical stuff why that is and using a masking agent which is like a uh you know, potpourri or something else just doesn't fix it. And so anyway, we'd start, we got the go ahead and 
when we started, this bloke walks in, turns out it was her, her dad and he knew everything. He used to own a cleaning business and he told us what he thought of us, told us we were a rip-off and we don't have to worry about it. And so when it went to market, so structurally everything looked good, I went to auction, I got a text from the agent and all it said was 50 under. Um, what that meant was she got 50K less. Right. All because she didn't maintain that property and because for $8,000 the, the issue wasn't remedied because you could smell that home outside. Yuck. That's yeah. terrible. Hot shocking. That's terrible. So a big part of what you do is is around the sort of presentation, renovation <laughs> and improvement pre-sale, but, but also during the course of a rental, you, you sort of say that it's very important to renovate between tenancies or at least sort of refresh between tenancies. What's the reason behind that? Well, in the rental game, it's geared uh, around back-to-back leases. And okay, we've had situations where a lease has ended on the same day as a new one's commenced. And property managers are doing everything they can to maximise return for the landlord. The problem is, is the home loses, becomes into disrepair and loses lustre between rental agreements. So by simply painting the property, replacing worn fixtures, updating light fittings, doing all those things, uh, first and foremost, maximises saleability straight away if that has to happen. Secondly, and this is the most important thing, it increases the possibility of rent return because when um, tenants are assessing a property, obviously the condition um, is important. And if the landlord doesn't care about the property, inevitably it affects the viewpoint that the tenant takes. Yeah, because that, I mean, it sends a message to the tenant, right? So if a landlord constantly voids maintenance and you know the property sort of runs into a bit of disrepair disrepair it's a bit tired when the new tenant goes in what sort of message is that sending to the tenant on what this the standard of expectation it is for them well tenants uh, naturally follow the cues of the landlord so the higher the standard the higher the expectations the tenants have of themselves unless they don't care and which occasionally that happens um, but conversely, if the landlord doesn't care, the tenant literally just says, well, why should we? And they believe they're paying good money for a premises. And, mate, I have seen some of the worst things you could imagine in properties because the landlord just doesn't care. Mm. And it's just a race to the bottom. And it begs the question, why don't they sort of understand the value of the increased rental yield with a refreshed property? It's, is it just, is it avoiding the pain of, of vacancy? Is that, is that what the real estate rental game is all about? It's just minimise that vacancy because no money coming in is, is negative and, and that kind of overwhelms the influence of the state of repair and presentation and that sort of thing. I'll answer that in two ways. It's, a landlord, when they're like that, either have an incredibly short-term week-to-week view or month-to-month view of their property. Um, and when you've got uh, someone who just provides just enough, um, it's a totally different mentality. If you have a landlord that understands what an investment's about and is pragmatic and long-term, um, their viewpoint's extremely different. In fact, the conversation is totally different. Um, and I was, years ago, I, was, I met a, uh, a guy 
um, a gr- little Greek guy, funnily enough, and his <laughs> wife called Costa and Eleni. And they owned over a, um, a dozen rentals in Melbourne's leafy east. So we're talking, you know, Ashburton, uh, Burwood, Glen Iris. There was a whole bunch of them. And I met him on one property. It was, in, uh, it was actually in Burwood East. Beautiful home, double story, in a lovely garden setting. And when I went in there, he was actually painting the house. And they'd been cleaning it. And so I asked him about why he was painting it. And he did with all his properties. And he went on to say that in all their rental agreements, they actually have gardeners who maintain the gardens. And that was just part of the lease agreement, um, which was for their tenants was fantastic because they don't have mm. to worry about anything. And, and here's the thing, Mike, is that um, Costa's reasoning was really interesting. He reasoned that while it was his investment property, it was the tenant's home. And he had a paradigm that understood that for families, they needed to feel proud and comfortable. And when tenants felt proud and comfortable, inevitably their uh, tenancy agreements went for much longer. Yeah. And so he owned a bunch of properties. If they were still around today, um, their properties, would have, they'd have assets over $20 million. Right, wow. But this was realised over many years. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, he, he was he was hoping that the tenants would, would form a bond with the property and treat it like their own, right? Because he was saying, it, well, it's their home. It might be my investment, but it's their home. It's, yeah, yeah I mean, well, it's... His shortest one was three years. He, he really? Was, yeah. His shortest tenancy agreement had been three years. Wow. And what would be the average at the moment? I mean, things are a little bit different right now. They're probably going to six months, a lot of places, but the average would be no more than 12 months normally. Yeah, look, yeah, I I see a lot of, I get a a lot of callbacks every 12 months. Um, And and I know I'm going to annoy a few people here. I I find that is often because long lease agreements aren't given out in the beginning. Right, uh, and there's a whole bunch of issues that we have in Australia that I find, in many ways, rather regrettable. Um, but there isn't a long-term view to tenancy, and I know plenty of tenants who would love to stay longer, um, but it's just not possible. Mm. Let's focus for a second on on if someone's looking to to sell a property. Hopefully it won't be the case that we have a lot of investors needing to sell uh, in the next little while. But of course, with the situation as it is, it it may be the case and it's very important to maximise the values. If someone's looking to, to sell a property, you've sort of, I guess, coined a term called pump priming. Um... And that relates to preparing a property for sale. This is a, a term that comes from, from motorsport. Can you help us out with this little metaphor you've got going on here? So I call it pump priming a property. In the auto game, when we're putting in uh, pumps, um, whether it be oil pumps, could be air conditioning pumps, or rebuilding a new motor, when you pump prime um, a pump, you've got your oil in it and then you bleed it. So you turn it over so all the air comes out. And what that means is that the very moment you start a motor, it's uh, the pump's operating at prime efficiency. What damages a motor is that waiting for the oil to actually pick up. And that's 
in the very beginning is where the damage begins. Mm-hmm. And so pump priming a property means that when we start a property, we deliberately start out the front. So a lot of guys will start inside, but we start out literally from the street. And that'll begin, we've got our gardeners who go in. Uh, when we're pressure washing, we actually begin with the gutters in the street and the, and the footpaths and the crossover or the driveways. And the reason we do that, we want people to know that there's change happening straight away. And sometimes those works, depending on the size of what's going on, can be from a few days to a few weeks. We've had one that lasted six weeks. And we need to start building interest in that home long before the official marketing campaign starts. So even though there's, there's no sort of evidence that it is going to go on the market, you're, just, you're, you're, stre- you're spreading a little bit of neighbourhood gossip. You know, what are the guys at number 63 doing? Have you seen, you know, the guys out the front? They must be, what's happening? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, we put up um, our rent, sell, buy, move sign. Um, uh-huh. So that's the first thing that you notice even before the official billboard goes up. But what it's designed to do, so often people, we find that people who end up buying the properties are in the area or upgrading. Yeah. And so when they can see change happening in the street, trust me, people watch. And there's a lot of questions that go on. And it sometimes means that within one or two days for the uh, canny real estate guys is that they can get exterior shots of what's happened um, and get that onto their um, uh, billboards and websites long before anything else will show up. Right. And so the property is looking absolutely magnificent while we're still doing everything else. And that's right. pump priming because we want to maximise interest. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's an interesting idea. And what, what, are the, what are the key things that you would recommend someone do if they are putting their house on the market? We've, we've cleaned the windows. We've obviously talked about the exterior, pressure washing, cleaning the gutters, that sort of stuff. And, and you know, painting, obviously, it's a, it's a, I guess, a big bang for buck thing. But typically, what, what are you engaged to do to get these properties to the point where the agents see them achieving their maximum value? Okay, I understand this through lots of experience. There's actually females who generally dictate whether it's going to be a goer or not. Mm-hmm. Females are much more intimate with a property. They understand it very differently to guys. Guys are like, man, it's got a garage, it's got a shed, I can park a car there, you beauty. And that, you know, <laughs> that's literally my sort of want list for our next property is, yeah, yeah. you know, three car garage, and I don't give a rat about the rest of it. <laughs> Absolutely. So we start with the end in mind is that our females are much more tactile. Mm-hmm. So literally we want that home to look like if the home was just built today to be able to touch it and feel it, it's got to be better than that. And so on the inside, when we're dealing with the general cleaning, we have our guys literally pull apart every cupboard doors come off everything. It gets cleaned, it gets sanitised, it gets put back in. Um, we deal with odour issues, which we often find in properties, whether they've had dogs or it could be the top cuisine that they're cooking. <laughs> so there can be restoration work going on there. Um, and we must understand that when someone sees the front of a, a property, um, homegains.com had a stat that people will make up their mind within the first seven to ten seconds of seeing a property on the outside. Gee. Seven to ten seconds. 
it, it's that quick. And so when you consider that you're competing against everyone else, everything that I can do to get an edge, everything that I can think of in all my experience, my whole um, ball game is this, is never to have the sales agent make any apologies for your property. Mm, right. Yep. And we are selling 30 years. Understand, the sale happens on the day. It's a 30-year commitment because that's yep. a mortgage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all I'm focused on, you know, there's the old saying, a man's house is his castle. Um, I actually say we're, we're turning it from being your castle to someone else's. And so um, mentally we gear our um, vendors for a transfer of ownership. This is my home with my memories to releasing themselves and preparing an investment property where they're dispassionate a little bit about their history, but they're very, very excited about what's going to come next. Yeah. And we've had some absolutely amazing outcomes. Yeah. So a bit like your real estate sort of new home sales, you're, you're, selling, you're selling the dream of the future for, for the new owners. Well, I mean, that, that's, you know, if that wasn't true, we would just live in, in literally boxes that all look the same. Mm. And it's not homes reflect people's personality. It has their hopes, has their future dreams there. Mate, I am so passionate about this. And it's like an explosion in a fax factory because when I get into this, <laughs> I'll just, yeah, I'll just keep going. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, because there are even birds that take such pride in their, in their domicile that they decorated and that sort of thing. And we know that there are psychological impacts on buildings. There's such a thing as sick building syndrome and there are buildings that can make us feel sort of in touch with the divine, you know, such as the architecture in churches and, and things like that. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting sort of thing to think about the, the emotions that a property can conjure up and how well, to sort of use that to your advantage there. And I think that that's what we must understand. And often people think that their properties are good enough. And I often ask one simple question. Would you have bought your house um, in the first place if it was in the condition it is today? Mm -hmm. And most people would say no. Yeah. I said, it, would you go and buy a brand new home that's in the condition your home is today? And it's always no. Mm. And so understanding there's a discipline to it, but when people engage with you the right way, people get really excited. And I've had um, vendors who've sneakily walked in pretending to be a buyer who've listened to what other people are saying and they've texted me, they've called me and they go, oh, man, you know, that colour you put there, you know, people really, really loved it or we put in plants um, and they've related things that people have actually said. Um, and so it's very, very exciting. That's pretty cool. Personally, I, I'm really disappointed that the, the best that any house that I've lived in has ever looked is normally in the weeks before it's sold. You, know, <laughs> you, you live in a certain way and then you're like, oh, we've got to sell this bloody thing. We've got to paint it. And then you think, oh, this is lovely. We, maybe we should, we should stay. Well, um, I've, I've actually got just a really quick funny story. We yeah. were asked by a leading agent um, in Melbourne's East. So there was a huge property in Roeville that I think was built in either late, very late 70s or early 80s. Italian family, huge property, huge block. And parents that had the kids, they'd moved on. 
and they were very, very house proud. But as they aged, it was running down. Yeah. And so they wanted to sell it. Fantastic couple. Everything that we suggested to do without even blinking, they said yes. And anyway, we spent the whole team, we were there for a week, finished it. They were happy. Bob's your uncle. Got paid and I went away. I got a phone call the next Tuesday from the selling agent and he greeted me with a few choice words. And I said, oh, what's up? He goes, that bleep bleep property you didn't rove it. I go, what's wrong? I thought they were happy. He goes, yeah, too happy. He goes, they've pulled it off the market. Oh, yeah, they'd fallen in <laughs> love with it again. It, look, it did come back on the market three months later because they realised they couldn't maintain it. Right. <laughs> but they just enjoyed the newness of it for a little bit. Yeah, maybe that's a trick. It's, you know, like you hear about all these people living their best life when they get a terminal illness. It would be nice to, to be able to have that without the negative of the terminal illness to do what you want to do. So maybe, yeah, if there's a way you can sort of trick yourself into thinking you need to sell just to fix your house up and enjoy it, that Mate, would be lovely. That's always the way. So of you, obviously you work with owner-occupiers and investors. Yep. Um, this is probably more a property investing podcast. Yep. Of the property investors that you work with, are there any that you really sort of see as nailing it that you could oh. give some insights to the listeners? Fantastic question. This is really exciting. Um, I guess the key best investors that we deal with are the ones who know their why. Typically, they're not timid. They're much more pragmatic. They think long-term. When spending money on property, they use terms like investing, where average investors use the term cost. How much is this going to cost me? And so just using those two terms, a switched-on investor will use the term, what's the investment? Because they understand that every penny you spend, value adds. Yep. And bad investors, and it's the only way I could describe it, they see everything as a negative that comes out of their pocket. Um, the other key things is a, a good investor demands value for money, but it's happy to work with a budget over time. Because yep. they've got a long-term uh, viewpoint. And here's the key big difference uh, that I believe, Mike, is mentorship and advice. The one thing I notice time and time again with a good investor is they've been mentored either through a process of buying or continual education. Yep. And so when you're talking to them, it's really easy to pick up to see whether they're still engaged. You know, owning a, one house or one unit or one flat isn't an end in itself. It's part of something much, much bigger. Mm -hmm. and, and that comes from knowing your whys. And they talk differently. They think differently. Uh, they're hungry to uh, learn more. They weigh advice in terms of future financial gains. And so everything that comes their way, um, the discussion's incredibly different. And probably the key best thing um, is with property management. And this is, um, in my opinion, the, criti uh, the most critical aspect is the property managers that they choose. Yeah. A poor investor begins by asking how much is a management fee. You know, I've yeah, heard, some, yeah. heard some as low as 2%. Um, that's just shocking. 2%, what are you going to get for 2%? And I've seen them chase that sort of rate. And so my advice is to any potential investor is you should interview your manager like you were going to be interviewed yourself for a high-paying position. Yep. Because remember this, is that 
if you own a three hundred thousand dollar property, which isn't expensive in you know in terms of the overall thing, but three hundred thousand is still three hundred thousand. If you had a car that was three hundred thousand, you'd want to make sure it's garage properly and serviced. You wouldn't want a speck of dust on it. No, nah, mate, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> and I got I got a car worth a few thousand. I wash it twice a week. <laughs> and so the key thing is to ask about their processes. You know, this is what the uh, the investor should be asking the the property manager. They need to know about their processes, how they problem solve, how they deal with tenant complaints or rental truancy, which is a really important one. How they handle VCAT meetings. So in Victoria. Um, that's our administrative tr- tribunal. So whatever state they have their local ones, those issues display a really good property manager. So never be timid to ask. And here is a question that no investor ever asks. They need to ask the uh, property manager, how will you keep me accountable? What do you mean by that? Well, the very best property managers will crack the whip when you're, when you're not meeting your obligations. Yeah. Um, I know I would have a property managers, I might know four or five who are A+. Plus. Every single one of them are female, interestingly. And they will crack the whip if you aren't meeting your obligations. The very best property managers will have no hesitation in firing you as a client if you don't honour your obligations to the property or tenant. Mm. I have seen that happen. Right. And they're the ones you want and they're the ones you need. Yeah, and, and I completely agree. The The value of property managers to investors sh- cannot really be understated. And I say sometimes that they're, they're a little bit like a referee that if everything's going well, they're invisible, but there's a lot of work behind the scenes and and the difference between a good and a bad one maybe is not huge in the day-to-day stuff where they're just sort of managing the, you know, the, the pay, um, the rental and trust account, that sort of stuff. But when it, when push comes to shove, the difference between a good and a bad one is immense and they're, they're looking after a very expensive asset, right? Oh, totally. And there's, um, there's two that I know. One's called Nune and another one is Jenny. And they are over all the details. Yeah. Nune, um, she, she even organises at the beginning of a rental agreement uh, for a cleaning bond to go into trust. Right. And so she, the properties she deals with are all high end. And she's unbelievably fussy about who goes in. Inevitably, those tenants end up staying a long time because the properties are always maintained to the highest. Yep. And she, she's a great conduit between the tenant and the landlords. And when she left one agent and went to another, her portfolio, the whole lot followed her. Wow. The That's whole something. lot. Yeah. It was really interesting. The uh, it was the guy who owned this particular agency had been in the game, you know, since Moses was a lad. His son took over. Didn't understand the nuances of the game, you know. 
and yeah. she ended up leaving and didn't realise how big her portfolio was. Mm, ouch. Yeah. Ouch, Junior. Rookie move. Yeah, yeah, very much. <laughs> now, Peter, if people want to get in touch with you as the great Greek connector and house presenter, um, you can have that title if you like. <laughs> how would they do that? Well, you can contact me. There's, there's three ways. You can contact me at info at rentsellbuymove.com.au. Um, you could go into my website, which is rentsellbuymove.com.au or directly on 0413-656-994. Just say that Mike sent you. <laughs> um, we do free, um, free uh, pre-sales and lease property audits. So we offer that for free. We go on site. We do report on absolutely everything. And when I say everything... That includes from the roadside all the way to the back fence and everything in between. We put together a report for you, a process. So whether you're just maintaining the property or you're preparing for lease or you want to do it up again or you're preparing for sale, um, we'll put that together for you. You're not obliged to use this, it's, but it's a roadmap that you can usefully use uh, for yourself anyway. Beautiful. Love it. And there's nothing much easier than a mobile number for getting in contact. Now, Peter, if there's one piece of advice that you can impart to property investors, what would that be? Number one, look after your relationships and the money will take care of itself. And when I say relationships, that could be with your lenders, your vendors, your buyers advocates, your sales agent, your property managers, um, and your tenants. Wherever you are in the marketplace, you have to look after the relationships. Property investment doesn't run on real estate. It's actually run on good, honest relationships. And when you respect the people, the advice and the process, you'll have abundance of money over time. Love it. And what a way to finish. Peter, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Oh, it's been fantastic. You have a fantastic day, Mike. You too. Cheers. Cheers.